Hi, this is Keon from Cleveland, Ohio. You are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You could recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond that, you can support our show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive bonus per month. And there are currently more than 30 episodes that you can binge. So it is a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, I would like to thank Chelsea M., Justine F., Amy B., Stephanie D., Jim M, Melissa Y, Sarah S, Kim C, Jennifer, and Alyssa for joining Patreon. And I would like to thank Alma for raising her pledge to the next level. And if you aren't interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to our show through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping the lights on and keeping us free of ads. So thank you. I'd also like to make a quick announcement about the Facebook group. We've always been open and welcoming of all the posts the group members have been making. We really enjoy the engagement, the interaction, the things that bring about interesting discussions and open up conversations. And posts of all kinds are always welcomed, whether they're true crime related or if there's something personal that you want to share on our page, but you can't share it on your personal page, you know that this is a safe place. We love all the memes. We love the posts about our pets, our families, our children. We can discuss current news events, breaking news, crime news. You know you can even open up about something that you might be struggling with in your personal life, something that you might need to seek advice about, something that you need to vent about. This is a group of nearly 1,600 people, and it has become abundantly clear that no matter what is going on with you, you are not alone. You can also announce your triumphs, your wins, your successes, your big brags, little brags, parent brags, humble brags, 
we really, really want to hear all of it and share with you in your joys. But just as a reminder, we do want to keep our posts interesting, thought-provoking, and we always enjoy a great conversation starter. At the same time, we want to try to keep the posts relevant to the purpose of this community that we've created, as well as free of politics, religion, or things that are meant to incite or provoke hostility. We also want to avoid duplicate posts or irrelevant posts where we are becoming less interesting and more of a nuisance than anything else to those who follow our page. So that being said, please, I want all of your posts to keep on coming, but have those caveats in mind when you do post. We really do appreciate every single one of you who actively participates in the group. And please feel free to reach out to me or any one of our admins if you have any questions or concerns about anything. There is always one of us around to talk to. As I mentioned in the group earlier this week, I had a different episode planned, but I've decided to postpone that one until next week because I've gotten a chance to talk to somebody who has written about the case in the Orange County Register, who is going to give me a little bit more insight into the story. So I've decided to put that one off until next week, until after I get a chance to talk to him. His name is Keith. He joined our group this week, and he is also a podcaster. So if you stay tuned to the end of this episode, I will play a promo for his show. It's called Crime Beat and it can be found across all of your favorite podcast platforms. So in place of that planned episode, I managed to throw together this episode in a day and a half, and I'm going to share with you a story that is likely familiar to some of you. It was, again, recommended to me by a listener, and I can't remember who or when because I'm so bad at that stuff. But if you're listening, and this case sounds familiar to you, and you brought it up to me, please message me again. This is a story of a man who was essentially leading two separate lives with two separate women, neither of whom wanted to lose him to the other woman. One was his wife, and the other was his mistress. And while the two of them were vying for his affections, this man seemed to be content with all of the attention that he was getting from both women and not really interested in picking one over the other. And to me, in the end, it would be his cockiness and his narcissism that would eventually lead to his undoing when one of these women decided that she was going to win this battle. In this 131st episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Women Who Loved Michael Daly. Our story today takes place in the city of Ventura, California, situated about halfway between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. On the morning of Monday, May 6, 1996, 35-year-old wife and mother, Sherry Daly, started off her day just like she did every other routine day. She dropped off her two sons at school, and before she headed home, she stopped to do some shopping at a nearby Target. One of her friends, who was head of security at the store, recalled seeing Sherry come in on that day, 
because she specifically stopped to talk to him for a few minutes before she went on with her shopping. Sherry was captured on the store's video surveillance cameras, finishing her purchase and exiting the store at 9.22 a.m. Those were the last known images ever taken of Sherry. It wasn't until later on that afternoon when Sherry failed to pick up her children from school and school administrators got in touch with her husband, the children's father, Michael Daly, that anyone realized that something was amiss. Sherry dutifully picked up her boys from school every single day without fail. So for her to not show up was incredibly troubling. After collecting his kids from school, Michael drove home expecting to find Sherry there. She was supposed to have been there around noon where she operated an in-home daycare. So I'm assuming that Sherry had hired someone to be there with the children in the morning so she could drop her boys off, run her errands, and then make it back to take over or relieve the other childcare provider. But she apparently never showed up. When Michael found Sherry wasn't there, he dialed 911 to report her missing. But at the time, the policy was is that a person needed to be missing for 72 hours before a report could be filed. Meanwhile, at Michael and Sherry's home, when parents started arriving to pick up their children, they inquired about Sherry's whereabouts and Michael told them that she was missing. They were like, wait, what? What do you mean she's missing? She's got to be somewhere. Ventura is not a huge town, so they started to volunteer to go searching various locations that they thought Sherry might be. They did not want to wait that mandatory three days to start looking for her. This was very unusual for Sherry. The van that Sherry drove was actually found by one of those parents that Sherry provided daycare for, and it was still sitting in the parking lot of that Target. The vehicle was unlocked, the keys were hanging from the ignition, and her driver's license, which was attached to her keychain, was there. The items that she had purchased were in the back seat, as well as her handbag, all inside, just sitting there. So, of course, Sherry's friends are alarmed by what they found. I mean, she'd been at the Target that morning, and the fact that her van was still there with all of her personal belongings and her purchases, they're thinking there is no way that she would have gone anywhere without any of her stuff. There's no way that she would have not shown up to take care of the kids at her daycare, and there is certainly no way that she would have not shown up to pick up her boys from school. So her friends who found the van contacted police again and reported what they had discovered. And it was at that point police decided to forego their 72-hour policy and begin the search for Sherry immediately, as there was nothing about her and nothing in her background that would have led anyone to believe that she would have left the area on her own based on the business that she ran and, of course, having her own children to be responsible for. Once police were alerted, a large-scale search for Sherry began, and it wasn't long before the media got involved, as well as all of Sherry's friends and the community as a whole. Flyers were printed and they were passed out all across Ventura. The local news descended on the locations of where Sherry went missing, 
They reported from where the searches were being coordinated, and they also interviewed Sherry's husband, Michael. He expressed his concern for his wife and how important she was to him and their family. He was very much front and center, at least in the day or two following Sherry's disappearance. All of Sherry's friends and those she associated with through the daycare all agreed that there was no way Sherry would have voluntarily left. Something or someone had prevented her from showing up at home and showing up to get her kids after school. Her husband, Michael, was expressing the same sentiments, but his thoughts immediately went to the worst-case scenario. When he spoke to some of Sherry's friends and their neighbors about what may have happened, he said that he was afraid that Sherry may have been taken by force, like kidnapped or something, and he had this feeling that it was going to end badly. He was telling people that he could feel it, that something terrible had happened to Sherry. Now, Sherry and Michael, they were pretty well-known and well-liked in the community because they had both been raised in this area. They went to high school together. They were high school sweethearts. And according to Sherry's mom, Carlene, Michael was Sherry's first and only love. And in her words, when it came to Sherry, the sun rose and set in Michael. The couple said their I do's in 1986 and would go on to have two boys together. At the time of Sherry's disappearance, I mentioned that she operated a daycare out of their home and Michael was a manager of a local grocery store. During the course of their 12 years of marriage, there had been some pretty serious issues. Things were rocky. What it sounded like to me is Michael wanted the comforts and stability of his home life with Sherry and his boys, but it wasn't quite enough for him. It had been reported that he really wasn't interested in ending the marriage, but he also wasn't interested in staying loyal to it either. However, Michael also didn't go through any sort of effort to hide the fact that he was indeed having affairs. And there was one woman in particular that became a long-term steady affair. Her name, Diana Hahn. They met at the grocery store. She was hired there and they worked together. And apparently at some point in her life, Diana had dabbled in modeling, so she was somewhat attractive and Michael was very attracted to her. And before long, Michael and Diana began an illicit affair. But it wasn't like it was some sort of dirty little secret. Everyone at work knew that they were seeing one another. People in Michael's family knew about his relationship with Diana and eventually Sherry would find out about the affair as well. I will come back to that and talk more about the relationship between Michael and Sherry and Michael and Diana as our story progresses. As we're getting into the early stages of the investigation, police began gathering information from some of the people who were shopping at the Target at the time Sherry was there and during the time that she was known to have exited the store. One woman who was walking through the Target parking lot reported to police that she happened to notice a woman sitting in a car by herself. And what stood out to her was the fact that she was wearing a blonde wig. It stuck with her because the wig was not subtle. It clearly was not this woman's natural hair. Another thing that the woman noticed that she found to be very bizarre was the fact that not only was she wearing this cheap-looking wig, 
The woman in the car also had on so much makeup, she could see even from the distance that she was when she passed by the car, that it looked so unnatural because it had been caked on so thick. The sight of this woman sitting in the car with this spackled on makeup and terrible wig was so alarming to this witness that she decided to go ahead and try to make note of the license plate. But when she did, something else became obvious to her. The license plate itself had been modified. So clearly, this woman did not want to be recognized, nor did she want the license plate of her vehicle be identified either. Based on the time the witness said she saw this strange woman sitting in her car, it was just a few minutes before Sherry was seen leaving the target on that surveillance footage. As Sherry was getting into her van and putting her things inside and getting ready to start the ignition, that woman in the wig and makeup pulled her car up behind Sherry's van, essentially blocking her into her parking spot. The car that this woman was driving was a bluish-greenish Nissan Altima. As Sherry was seated in the driver's seat, the woman got out of this Nissan and approached Sherry on the driver's side of her van. The woman had a brief verbal exchange, at which point Sherry got out of her vehicle, turned to face away from the woman. She placed her hands behind her back, at which point the woman put Sherry in handcuffs. Investigators have opined that this woman informed Sherry or at least led her to believe that she was some sort of member of law enforcement. And for some reason that Sherry was in some kind of trouble and Sherry did not seem to do anything to resist or argue or protest the reasons why she was being placed into custody. As by witnesses accounts, Sherry was completely compliant. I did later read a report that suggested that Sherry may have been under the impression that her husband may have been up to something illegal and that it might have interfered with or become problematic with the fact that she was the owner of an in-home daycare, which is why Sherry did not appear to resist. Because really, if any of us were out of the blue randomly approached by a quote-unquote detective and told that we were under arrest, and we literally had no clue what any of this was about, we're probably going to get pretty upset and start proclaiming our innocence. We didn't do anything. What is this all about? I mean, it's a little bit after nine in the morning on a Monday. Sherry's a mom and a daycare provider. What in the world could Sherry have possibly done to be placed under arrest? The fact that her husband just might be into something illegal that could have gotten them both in trouble. I'll explore that possibility as we go along here. The fact is, whatever wig woman said to Sherry, it didn't seem to be all that much of a shock to her. When she was handcuffed, the woman arresting her escorted her over to her Ultima, opened the back door, placed Sherry in the back seat, and drove away. There were numerous witnesses who saw the whole thing take place and all of them thought the same thing. This was a detective and that detective was arresting Sherry. End of story. It all went down pretty quickly and quietly and smoothly. It wasn't a big spectacle in the parking lot. 
The women drove off and that was that. So Ventura police looked into their department as well as other surrounding local law enforcement agencies and they were able to confirm that nobody within any of those departments had taken Sherry Daly into custody that morning, nor had she been processed into any of their jails. So it quickly became clear to investigators assigned to Sherry's case that this was some sort of abduction and they weren't getting their hopes up that this was somehow going to end well because it almost never does. The following day, on Tuesday, May 7th, Michael again went before the media, and this time it was with his and Sherry's two boys, Devin, who was eight years old at the time, and Max, who was six. And all three of them pleaded with the public for help and information to bring their mom home. Michael himself said this was completely out of character for Sherry, that she wouldn't just get into a car with a stranger and that she would not abandon her children like this. Now again, I don't know what, if anything, Michael knew about the case. This is only the first day in, but clearly Sherry did not get into a car on her own with a stranger that she didn't know. She got into that car because she was told that she was under arrest and she was complying with the orders that she thought were coming from a police officer. And when it came to the the boots-on-the-ground searches for Sherry, her friends and loved ones were really able to get out there and rally the support of the community to come on out and help search for her. They came together wanting to help find the missing mother of two. They organized search parties. They canvassed the city. They passed out and put up flyers everywhere in an effort to spread awareness and to get Sherry's image out there with the hopes of anyone recognizing her to come forward with some information that might lead to where she might be. The community was doing everything and everything that they could in their power to try and drum up potential leads and tips for police to track down and investigate because they really wanted to see Sherry come home. As details about Sherry, her background, her personality, the kind of person that she was, All accounts were she was very kind and loving and caring and very, very devoted to her family. She loved her job, she loved her children, and she loved her husband. But slowly, information began trickling out that her husband, Michael, and I talked a little bit about it towards the beginning, that he was openly having an affair with a co-worker at the grocery store that he managed. So once the word started spreading that Michael was being less than faithful to Sherry, little red flags started going up and people began looking at Michael Daly slightly differently than the concerned husband and father that he had been portraying himself to be in the media. Time and time again, when something like this happens to a woman like Sherry, you hear about extramarital affairs the husband immediately comes under intense scrutiny. So investigators began taking a closer look at Michael Daly. What's this guy's story? What is he all about? And what might he know about what happened to his wife? Well, when investigators began looking into Michael, they came to find that the affair that he was having with Diana Hahn was only the latest in a string of affairs that he'd been having with various women and co-workers 
pretty much spanned the duration of his and Sherry's marriage. As I had said, they had started dating in high school. And when they got married in 1984, Sherry was 23 years old. So putting their whole relationship into perspective, if, say, they began dating about halfway through high school, we don't exactly know when, but by the time they were married, they had been together for at least six or seven years. So by the time she went missing in 1996, they had been married for 12 years. So in total, the couple had been together for anywhere between 18 or 19 years. So as Michael carried on with his various affairs, it was reported that Sherry remained completely devoted to him. How much or how little she knew about what Michael was up to, we really can't say, but the impression I'm getting is that Michael knew Sherry would never leave him, therefore he felt at liberty to do what he wanted to do, and he wasn't going to be made to face any real consequences. Sherry wasn't going to leave him. Not only that, she was determined to try and make things work. And when it came to his most recent mistress, Diana, it seemed as though Sherry was going to try to step up her game to try and win Michael back. Which is really sad to even have to say out loud because from all I can see, Michael appeared to really enjoy having these two women compete for him, and that's just gross. But anyway, Sherry was more threatened by Diana because... The affair had been going on for about two years by the time Sherry disappeared. It seemed as though Michael, on some level, was apparently in love with Diana. He was more serious about her than any of his previous mistresses. And it was turning into something long-term, and they had gone public with it. And, while Michael had no intentions of ending his relationship with Diana for the sakes of his marriage, it was apparent he had no intentions of ending his marriage either. He may have entertained the idea of splitting up. He and Sherry may have discussed it. Perhaps they kept going around in circles and back and forth, staying together, breaking up. It can go like that sometimes. But the fact is, it's just convenient for Michael to have things the way he's been having them. So that kind of complicates things, right? I mean... Most of the time when a married person is having an affair, they put a great deal of effort to keep it hidden from their partner, usually. If and when that affair is discovered, then talks of divorce and moving out and splitting up. And if there are kids involved, there's custody and child support. And what ends up happening is it starts to become clear that divorce is going to be an incredible financial burden. And even though both husbands and wives commit murder, most of the time, it's the husband that does the harm to the wife, and sadly, sometimes the kids. Because in this case, the victim, the missing person, is the wife. I'm going to use the male pronouns here. So when the couple starts talking divorce, it starts with the husband usually trying to figure out what is going to benefit him the most now that he's not going to be able to have his cake and eat it too. Time and time again, when it comes down to a choice between divorce or murder, he comes to the conclusion that murder is the better option for some ungodly reason. But that isn't exactly the case here with Michael and Sherry. He's made no secrets of his affairs. For years, he's been able to have his cake and eat it too. And for reasons known only to her, 
Sherry stood by. And I don't want to say that she allowed it to happen, but it didn't seem like Michael was all that concerned that she might kick him out or divorce him. There weren't going to be any consequences, so he did as he pleased. Leaves us wondering, did Michael have a need or a motive to be rid of Sherry then? It didn't seem like it was a pressing issue. But then again, perhaps it wasn't him that was feeling the need for this affair with Diana to progress to the next level. Apparently, Michael and Diana's relationship was incredibly intense. They were said to be deeply in love and considered one another to be each other's soulmate. Well, the more Michael's feelings for Diana continued to deepen, the more strain it was putting on his relationship with Sherry. And he actually began to start building up a sense of resentment towards her. He was pretty much emotionally checked out of the marriage. He had become hostile, disrespectful, and he really lost any and all concern about Sherry. He didn't care if she was hurting over this. He didn't care if she remained devoted to trying to work things out. He just didn't care. So if they were fighting every single time he walked through the door, then that was probably pushing him further and further away and straight into Diana's arms. And as for Diana... There was something about her that was very alluring to Michael. She was attractive, she was fun, but she was also interested in certain things that he found to be different and new and exciting. She was really into the occult, all things mystical, magical, and supernatural. She was interested in witchcraft, black magic, sorcery, and it seemed as though Michael, on some level, became interested in those same things. Whether or not it was genuine, I can't say, but whatever the case, he thoroughly enjoyed that side of Diana, and he was drawn even closer to her because of it. Sherry, sensing that she was losing Michael to this other woman, decided to try to take a stand for herself and for her marriage, and she began to fight back. There had been an occasion when she actually went to Michael and Diana's place of work and confronted her face-to-face and told her to leave her husband and her family alone. And it would be this confrontation that compelled Michael to make a drastic decision. And I don't know if he did it because Sherry gave him an ultimatum to make a choice and he called her bluff, or if he was just trying to make some sort of point to Sherry. But whatever the case was, Following that confrontation between Sherry and Diana, Michael moved out and he went to go live with Diana. Though he didn't tell Sherry that he is moving in with her. He just said that he was going to move out so he could have some time and space to himself to try and figure out what he wanted to do next. Eventually, Sherry figured it out that he was, in fact, living with Diana because her kids told her that their dad and Diana had an apartment together. Apparently, While their boys were with Diana and Michael, they acted as though they were a family. Diana was treating the boys as if they were her own children. I mean, if you're dating someone that has children, by all means, if that relationship is going to have a future, then yes, embracing your role in your partner's children's lives is totally important. 
But if you're having an affair with someone who's married, I'm not one to think it's a good idea to bring the children into the middle of it. I don't want to come off as being too judgmental. These are very personal and intimate and private matters. But anyway, that's how Sherry found out through her own kids. Meanwhile, as the investigation was moving along, more and more starts to become known about Michael beyond this affair with Diana. It was revealed that Michael was not only being unfaithful to his marriage, he was also being unfaithful to his mistress as well. Behind both of their backs, Michael had been indulging in a lifestyle of excess that included regularly hiring sex workers, and on top of that, he had a need to feed his own insatiable cocaine habit. So this guy is just excessive, you know, with everything. He's just a mess of a man. And I feel terribly for Sherry having to have gone through something like this with a man that she clearly loved and was devoted to. And for her to have been treated so badly, it's heartbreaking. And yes, she chose to stay. I'm not going to sit here and judge her for that. But that doesn't take away from how we feel about her situation and how painful we know that it must have been. And yet, in the face of all of this, the infidelity, and I don't even know how much or how little Sherry knew about the sex workers and the drugs. I know she had some idea of the drugs. But I think she may have had somewhat of an idea that there was more going on with just his affair with Diana. But in the face of all of it, Sherry continued to fight for this man. She felt as though she was in this competition, pitted up against the exotic and alluring mistress. So she made an attempt to glam herself up. I guess if you've seen pictures of Sherry in high school, she was a cute little blonde, but maybe as she was starting to have kids and she was getting into her mid-30s, sometimes we turn into these frumpy moms, you know? And I say we because I can totally include myself in that. And I don't even know if that's much of a thing anymore. All the moms I see on Facebook and Instagram nowadays are pretty glamorous, but that might just be because of the advent of social media. We're talking about the 90s here with Sherry. You know, it's not the greatest decade when it came to style and fashion. Am I right? Sherry had kind of this awkward hairstyle. It was sort of long and stringy and wavy. And she had kind of this poofy thing that she did on the top and on the sides. And she had some long bangs. And by no means was she overweight in any pictures that I saw of her. But she did feel the need to drop a few pounds. So she made herself over. She straightened and darkened her hair. She experimented with more dramatic makeup. And honestly, in her glammed up photo that I saw... She kind of looked like Jennifer Aniston. I mean, Sherry was beautiful. She just needed to fine-tune a few things to bring about her best features. And by the way, Michael Daly, I'm sorry, but whatever the hell it was these women saw in this guy is beyond me. And yes, I'm being superficial at the moment, but let's face it. This guy is a certified assholiest asshole of the highest order. There is nothing about him as a person or a human being that any of us would find pleasant or appealing inside or out. 
So I feel like it's not as judgy because he's disgusting all around. There's nothing redeeming about this man. And he is just gross. I cannot emphasize that enough. Gross, nasty, revolting, yuck, just yuck. When you look at pictures of this guy, you just want to barf. So Sherry made her play for Michael and she thought it worked because after a couple of months of living outside the family home, he moved back. But it really didn't have anything to do with the desire to be with the new and improved Sherry. And it had everything to do with the reasons I pointed out earlier as to why Michael wasn't in a hurry to seek a divorce. Money. You know, he still got to support his home with Sherry and the kids. But on top of that, he had the added financial obligation of paying for that apartment with Diana. It was severely cutting into his entertainment funds namely the sex workers and the cocaine. And I think I need to make it clear, he did not move into an apartment that Diana was already living in. She had been living at home with her parents. When he moved out, they went and rented an apartment together. Diana wasn't going to be able to afford to stay there without Michael. And within a couple months, he realized that supporting two women and two homes was severely cramping his style. So he sent Diana back home to live with her parents and opted to move back in with Sherry and the kids. And I'm going to guess that this did not make Diana Hahn very happy. Not at all. Because let's face it, just because Sherry was willing to put up with Michael's BS doesn't mean Diana was going to. Investigators decided it was time to bring Michael and Diana in for questioning as their suspicions began to zero in on one or both of them. Diana more so because they know for a fact that it was indeed a woman that kidnapped Sherry from that parking lot. So they are interested in her, definitely, but they are not eliminating Michael as possibly having some sort of involvement. When they went over to the Dally home and knocked on the door, it was actually Diana that answered and she was almost naked, wearing some pretty revealing lingerie. She invited the detectives in, but Michael, he was reluctant to come down, like a coward, and meet with the detectives. They insisted that he show himself, and when he did, he too had on only a pair of boxers. No time wasted in setting up house, these two, right? They told them they wanted to take them down to the police station for interviews, So they agreed, they got dressed, and voluntarily came in for questioning. One of the first things investigators wanted to know from Diana was where she was the morning of Monday, May 6th. She explained that after she got up that morning, she went on a bike ride. She actually called it an exercise ride. She said she rode from her home in Port Wainimi to a place called Surfer's Knoll. I looked on maps and one way that's about an hour long bike ride, 10 miles or 16 kilometers one way. She said she sunbathed for a while and then rode home. Detectives were skeptical of this story because it kind of seemed like a long bike ride and it was an activity that they would not be able to verify. So essentially they have her accounting for this large portion of the whole day and in no way were they going to be able to follow up on her story. 
It just so happened as the investigators were talking to Diana, they received a phone call from one of her co-workers at the grocery store. And they said, make sure you look at the scratches on Diana's forehead. The co-worker said that when Diana came into work on the Monday that Sherry disappeared, she had scratches on her forehead and her face was completely red as if she had been in some sort of physical altercation. The way Diana's hair was styled, it appeared to be long and all one length. Perhaps it was long layers. Her hair was parted to the side and it sort of hung down across her forehead and the end of it was pulled back and maybe tucked behind her ear or something like that. So most of her forehead was covered by her hair. So detectives asked Diana to move her hair to the side and let them see. And there they saw two clear scratches in the middle of her forehead. So they asked her, how did you get those scratches? Diana explained, well, I was riding my bike and there were some men who started catcalling me. I was momentarily distracted. I lost my balance and fell and hit my head. Investigators remained skeptical of her story because honestly, they looked like fingernail scratches. But for the time being, both Diana and Michael were free to go. But they remained at the top of the suspect list. But if we're being real here, they were the suspect list. While the community continued the ongoing effort to search for Sherry, investigators assigned to her case decided to take an even closer look at Diana Hahn's background. What is this woman all about? And they really weren't finding all that much. Diana's life, for the most part, was relatively unremarkable. She did have a traumatic incident in her childhood that may or may not have had an effect on who she would turn out to be and what she would turn out to be like. She was at a playground on a basketball court and somehow the hoop and the backboard collapsed. I don't know if it was the result of someone dunking or if the structural integrity of the thing gave way, but when it did come down, it struck Diana on the head, causing her to suffer a massive head injury that led to some what they thought was pretty severe brain damage. It has been reported, though, that once she recovered, Diana went back to school and her academic performance had no drop-off whatsoever. So it wasn't thought that the damage had been that extensive as Diana was still able to keep up the pace at school. But as Diana grew up and got into adulthood, she was largely unambitious, kind of apathetic. She received compensation for the injuries that she sustained on that basketball court, so she was mostly living off that money. But when it came to seeking work, Diana mostly found herself in low-skill, low-paying jobs. At the grocery store, she worked in the deli department. Now, I personally think working in a grocery store is perfectly legitimate, but it seemed that that's where Diana finally settled after a series of dead-end jobs. Diana was a relatively attractive woman. She was, at least in some part, Japanese, and looking at pictures of her, you can kind of tell she appears to be mixed with something. She has a very distinctive, unique look about her. Michael Daly is also of Japanese descent, though I don't know if he's mixed or not. He does appear, though, to have stronger Asian features than Diana. 
and the couple was said to have connected in part through their shared cultural background. Diana was single, and she made a habit of dating married men. And the reasons some women might do this might involve a resistance to getting too close to someone that they're in a relationship with. They want that boundary clearly in place. There is an understanding that this relationship is only going to go so far. They find a certain amount of comfort in that. Another reason might be an inability to form intimate relationships with people. Maybe a fear of an absolute commitment. There might be a part of Diana that likes the fact that she can woo men away from their marriages. Maybe it gives her self-esteem a boost. It gives her a sense of control. Whatever the reasons, Diana sought relationships with married men and preferred it that way. But when it came to Michael Daly, did Diana's feelings run a little deeper for him? Or maybe he added another layer of a challenge in the fact that he wasn't going to leave Sherry for her. And when he finally did shack up with her, he ended up going back a couple months later. Did Diana take that more personally? Was this a blow to her own ego? Was Michael Daly the one guy that she could not lure away from his marriage? Maybe she didn't anticipate the battle that Sherry Daly was going to wage against her in her attempts to wreck their home. Perhaps in the past, every other married man that Diana became involved with eventually led to a breakup and a divorce. And that was some sort of weird victory for Diana. And once that happened, and the man she was with was on the market and free to be with her, the excitement of it all was over. And then she'd move on to the next. I'm only speculating here because I don't know what goes on in the mind of a person who will only date somebody that is married. I don't know why anyone would want that other than for reasons that I'm really not going to truly understand because I would not like that. I would never want to be on either end of that mess. And as I pointed out earlier, Diana's life is generally thought to have been relatively mundane and dull. So when she met Michael Daly, when she was hired to work at the deli department at his store, the attraction between them was instant and intense for both of them. As much as he was enamored with her, she was with him as well. They bonded quickly over, of course, their attraction to one another, their shared culture, and the other things that I previously talked about in terms of Sherry's interests, things that are different and exciting for Michael, like her interest in the occult and the witchcraft. We should also make note of the fact that after she met Michael, Diana began taking karate lessons, and in an interview with her instructor, He pointed out that it's one of those disciplines where you don't necessarily have to be large to be an effective fighter. That despite her small frame, Diana was much stronger than she looked. And she had not a problem keeping up with anyone in the class, male or female. This woman could fight. She could hold her own. So with the way that she and Michael were together, they had this way of fulfilling some sort of void or something that was missing that was giving them both a boost in confidence. Diane, having been doing well with her karate lessons, also a confidence booster, but also getting her into great shape. And a new side of Diana began to evolve. One who began to understand that 
she was more than just a mundane, boring old nobody. She started to feel comfortable in her own skin, and she started to see that she had a certain amount of power. She could be the one in control, and that could be quite the revelation for someone who has never experienced those feelings ever before. And once Diana had that self-confidence, that's when she started dabbling in modeling. And now Diana was more self-assured than ever. She was going through an evolution. And soon she began leaving behind the desire to be someone's mistress and started wanting to be someone's missus. Specifically, Mrs. Diana Daly. She started sharing those feelings with some of her friends and co-workers. She wanted a life with Michael, and she made it clear that she was going to do what it took to get her way. Not only did she want to marry Michael, she wanted to take on the role of raising his two children as her own. Michael Daly, of course, is continuing to try and play both women, trying to keep both of them happy. There is at least one holiday season that passed where Michael actually had the audacity to not only have holiday portraits taken with Sherry and the boys, he did the same exact thing with Diana and the boys. And to compound the hurt, all of this most certainly was causing Sherry. Diana made sure to go out of her way to rub the fact that she was having a long-term sexual relationship with Michael in her face. It gave Diana a great deal of pleasure to not only create those wounds, but to constantly be pouring salt into them to make sure that Sherry felt her presence in their lives constantly, was actively working to cause chaos and destruction in her marriage to Michael. And I'm sure that Michael just sat back and watched with his own twisted pleasure in seeing these women fight over him. And just as an example of how vicious Diana and Michael were towards Sherry, Diana actually had a body pillow custom-made with a silkscreen image of her face printed on it. And if that wasn't humiliating enough, Michael actually brought that home and slept with it in their marital bed. At this point, we can only hope that Sherry would eventually start to stand up for herself to take a hold of her life, her self-respect, her dignity, and decide that enough was enough and toss this man out on his ear. Sadly, Sherry would never get that chance. The investigation eventually led to some of Michael's co-workers to whom he had confided in over the course of his relationship with Diana. Witnesses came forward and said that there were occasions when they would be working and talking with Michael and that he would express how much he hated his wife and how things would be so much better if she was just gone, she would just disappear. He also insinuated that the beauty of his relationship with Diana is the fact that if he really, really wanted Sherry to vanish, he wouldn't even have to do it himself. And he also alluded to that old-fashioned idea that we discussed in the recent episode on Thora Chamberlain. If Sherry disappeared and no one was ever able to find her or what happened to her, then essentially, there is no crime. It's that old, nobody, no crime philosophy. But for this investigation, detectives can't simply go on some idle chit-chat that took place in the back room of a grocery store. 
it's not nearly enough to prove anything when it comes to Michael Daly and what involvement he may or may not have had with Sherry's disappearance. Investigators desperately needed a break, a big one. No matter what Diana and Michael did to Sherry, no matter how hurtful they were to her and how much they just carried on, no matter how awful these people were, it simply wasn't enough. It's a big leap from that to actually causing harm to Sherry. While that big break finally came, detectives on the case were able to track down the car that was used to kidnap Sherry from the Target parking lot, that bluish-greenish Nissan Altima. It was found at the Oxnard Airport, which is about 9 miles or 14 and a half kilometers south-southeast of Ventura. Because it was at the airport, there was this momentary flicker of hope that Sherry might actually still be alive. Perhaps she was quote-unquote arrested by this woman in the wig, and maybe she was threatened or otherwise forced to leave town. With all the turmoil in Sherry's life, could it have been possible? Sure. But is it likely? Highly doubtful, considering that she has two children that she would have never left behind. So no dreamers, Sherry did not get on a plane and fly off to parts unknown to escape the torment and humiliation Michael and Diana were causing her. The Ultima was at the airport because it was a rental. The investigation into Diana Hahn revealed that the vehicle had been rented in her name. Investigators were also able to retrieve the original copies of the rental agreement and it was made out to Diana Hahn. Her signature was on several places on the contracts as well as her initials in various places. This was the first major break investigators had been hoping for. We'll talk more about the rental car in a moment. Even though detectives were focusing more and more in on Diana Hahn, they were still keeping a watchful eye on Michael and what he was up to in the days and weeks following Sherry's disappearance. Remember, with the exception of the person who made Sherry disappear, nobody knows what's become of her thus far. It isn't known if she's alive or if she's dead. And if you really put yourself in the place of someone who is missing a loved one, any of us, if our significant other inexplicably goes missing, what are we going to do over the next several days and weeks, perhaps months? It's going to be massively traumatic. I don't know how many of us know what it's like to have a loved one go missing. I don't know. I've never been through it. Most of us are probably more familiar with how it feels when someone close to us passes away. It's painful, but it's not a mystery at least for the most part anyway. Our loved ones die. We go through the gamut of emotions, shock, denial, sadness, sorrow, grief, anger, emptiness, and eventually time passes and we heal. But when someone is missing, our emotions really have no direction to go. We've heard it so many times over, like life goes on, but there's still this big, open, empty void that keeps you from fully being able to move forward because you just don't have any answers. And to me, that seems like it would be more difficult than death, the not knowing. 
and I can't even imagine being in that limbo. Michael Daly's high school sweetheart, his wife of a dozen years, the mother of his two young children has vanished without a trace. Should he be stuck in that void? The place where your life has come to a screeching halt because something has caused your partner to no longer exist and you cannot advance forward until you have some answers. Your life, your world, it would just be frozen in time because the unanswered questions are hanging over you and making progressing in any direction impossible. You would think, right? No, not Michael Daly. He carried on without missing a beat. The media followed him around for some time, and he'd just go through his day with that stupid, arrogant smirk on his face, somehow twisting this around in his own head that managed to stroke his ego even more than it already had been up to this point. He moved Diana Hahn in without a moment's hesitation. This man never stopped. In the first day or two following Sherry's disappearance, he made a couple of appearances on TV with his boys pleading for Sherry's safe return, but that was the extent of it. The entire community came out to help in the search for Sherry. They were going out on foot with search teams, scouring the surrounding areas, passing out flyers, doing all that they could to help. But Michael Daly did not participate in any of the search efforts. He simply carried on with life, Diana by his side, like nothing ever happened. They were even seen shopping for jet skis, planning for the upcoming summer vacation that was just around the corner. What's more, within days of Sherry's disappearance, investigators surveilling him saw him as he packed up Sherry's entire wardrobe and donated all of it. And if that wasn't enough, there's more. By May 14th, just eight days after Sherry disappeared, Michael went to the Ventura County Superior Court and filed for a legal separation from Sherry. Eight days. These are definitely not the actions of a man who is hoping for the safe return of his missing wife. And I think it's safe to assume that Michael Daly knows that Sherry is never coming back. In the meantime, the rental car, the Nissan Altima, was towed and brought into the crime lab and searched for potential evidence. It didn't take long at all to determine that some kind of violent event took place on the inside of that vehicle. It did appear as though that someone had made an attempt to clean up the inside of the car. The seats had been scrubbed, the floor mats had been washed, but despite the effort, a great deal of blood evidence was found throughout the car, mainly in the back seat. There were dry blood spots found in various places where a person who tried to clean it up had overlooked. The blood was later determined to be human, and later DNA testing revealed that it was Sherry's. Human blood had soaked into the back seat and saturated the floorboard. The cursory attempt to scrub these areas was evident, but the blood had already soaked in. Blood spatter was found on the interior roof, the door handle, on the seatbelt, the center console, and inside the trunk. So now that investigators had their first pieces of physical evidence that foul play was involved in Sherry's disappearance, this gave them the probable cause to get some search warrants signed by a judge. 
it was finally going to give them a chance to search both Michael and Sherry's houses. And they also brought them back in for further questioning. Michael and Diana were interviewed separately, and true to form, Michael stayed his course of being cocky and manipulative. And this was his story. I was at work when Sherry was kidnapped from Target. You can check the time cards. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. Cue Michael Daly's stupid smirk. And when he's proclaiming his innocence, at the same time, he was trying to figure out how much the cops knew. If Michael was any bit nervous or worried, he didn't show it. He remained calm and collected throughout the entire ordeal. Not even phased that he's being investigated for possible involvement in a murder. Whereas the average person would probably be pretty shaken up when put into a situation like this. Not Michael Daly. But again, we do know that it was a woman who confronted and kidnapped Sherry in that parking lot, not a man. So he has at least that going for him. But Diana Hahn, not so cool, calm, and collected during her interview, not in the slightest. She was actually quite hysterical, crying, upset, just really beside herself this time around. Not the same friendly, chatty, borderline flirty Diana that she was the first time when she had answered that door wearing skimpy lingerie. Investigators were not going to hold back. They could see that Diana was on the verge of breaking down. She was going to crack and this is exactly where they wanted her. Detectives told her, Michael is saying that you did this on your own. You're the one responsible for Sherry not being here. He's laid the entire blame at your door. This has Diana shaken to her core. How can Michael do this to her? She was in hysterics, repeatedly asking, begging, pleading to speak with Michael. So they brought Michael in to be alone with Diana. Of course, the whole thing was being video and audio recorded. Part of it you can see on YouTube, and I'll post links of the videos in the show notes. So he sat down, and they're looking at each other, very longingly and lovingly. Michael leans in and hugs Diana to comfort her, and it was working. He assured her, that these people were only going to be able to keep her in custody for 24 hours. That was it, and he promised that he would see her the following day. And then the detectives described Michael doing something unlike anything they'd ever seen before. Maybe it was some sort of confidence-building technique used in martial arts, building up someone, kind of hyping up a person, like right before they're about to go in for a fight, like, come on, you've got this, you got this, you can do this. It was kind of like a really bizarre next level pep talk. And as investigators watched from an adjoining room, they could slowly see the confidence rebuilding within Diana. Eight hours of vigorous interrogation had brought Diana right up to the breaking point. And within minutes, Michael was able to dismantle it all. He talked her back down and undid everything the detectives had accomplished. He had replenished everything Diana needed to hold up under the next round with detectives. So they took Michael out of the room and started in on Diana again. 
They showed her a picture of Sherry and asked her, If we find her, how's Sherry going to look? Is she going to look like she does in this picture? Diana came up with some dumbass answer like she might have done something different to her hair. And the detective was like, yeah, right. A new hairstyle and her face is going to be all bloated and her body all covered in maggots, right? That's how we're going to find her. Is that something that anybody deserves? Does anybody deserve to be left like that? They're asking Diana. Now I can see where the detective is trying to go with this, but pleading to Diana Hahn's sense of decency and humanity isn't going to get him anywhere because we know how little regard Diana had for Sherry. I would even go so far as to say that I'm sure she hated the woman for being the one roadblock in her efforts to become Michael Daly's wife. In the interrogation video, Diana barely batted an eyelash when he told her that they were going to find Sherry bloated and covered in maggots. She barely even flinched. She just stared blankly. A second detective made one last-ditch effort. We want her body, Diana. We want to get her back before the wolves and the coyotes get to her. And Diana, all she had to say was, I don't think she's dead. Exasperated, the detective threw his hands up and said, Okay, you can't help me. Fine. Good luck in court. He got up and Diana was promptly handcuffed, arrested, and booked on kidnapping and murder charges. For now, stupid, smiling, smirking what's-his-face would remain free. The evidence against Diana continued to pile up. Going through her financial records, they uncovered a number of checks that she had written on her account. One was paid to the order of a wig shop. When investigators spoke to the owner of that store, she totally remembered Diana because Diana specifically asked for a wig that would make her look like a police officer. What a dummy, right? This woman, I I just can't with her. They found another check written by Diana paid to the order of a local department store. And with that transaction, Diana had purchased a tan pantsuit, like professional women's business attire. Witnesses who saw Sherry being arrested said the officer arresting her, or this quote-unquote officer, was wearing a tan pantsuit. Another check was paid to the order of another store where Diana made purchases of matches, lighter fluid, a hatchet, crazy glue, and large garbage bags. All of those things sound pretty frightening, and we all have an idea of what each of those things is for. But the one thing that gives me the heebie-jeebies is the crazy glue. Like, what in the holy murder kit is that going to be used for? I'm not even going to speculate because, honestly, I don't even want to know. Diana did go to some lengths to try and cover her tracks, but clearly she did not put as much effort into it as she should have. For starters, why the hell is she writing checks everywhere? Why not make all of these purchases with cash? I don't know, maybe she didn't have the money and maybe the checks may or may not have cleared the bank. Whatever the case, she wrote the checks. But she did make an attempt to alter her signature. 
I assume to make the claim that her checkbook was stolen and she didn't write these checks or whatever. But she did make one big huge mistake in that she used a green ink pen to write all of her checks. And when she was arrested, what do you know, they found a green ink pen in her purse. Later forensic testing of the ink on the checks when compared to the ink from the pen in her purse, the chemical makeup of both ink samples were identical. So, the investigators know that Diana Hahn is good for this murder. But the one thing they still didn't have was Sherry's body, and Diana wasn't talking. Holding on to the hope that she will never be found, thereby leaving open the possibility, at least in her mind, in believing what Michael Daly had been telling her all along. No body, no crime. Yeah, Diana is not going to divulge anything. So would law enforcement attempt to broker a deal with her in order to get the information out of her? The goal, of course, is always in the interest of justice. But at the same time, they still want to find Sherry's body. And they might play let's make a deal in order to get it. Fortunately for investigators, they're not going to have to make any deals with the devil worshiper. All of the hard work put in by Sherry's community paid off. 26 days after Sherry was abducted from that parking lot, one of the searchers found what was left of her. Sherry had been left in a canyon at the bottom of a ravine in Ojai, California, just outside of Ventura approximately 12 miles or 19 kilometers away from where she was taken. For investigators, it was a bittersweet moment. There was certainly a sense of relief that they were able to find Sherry and bring her home and give her the proper burial that she very much deserved. But it was also the end of any hope of the slim chance that she might have been alive out there. Considering the way she had been treated by Michael and Diana, Running away and hiding from all of that mess had still been a possibility, albeit an unlikely one. Once the medical examiner had a chance to take a look at Sherry's remains, it was clear that her death was not an easy one. It was vicious and violent. In an August 1997 article written by Tracy Wilson for the Los Angeles Times, it detailed the medical examiner's findings. According to the coroner, after being repeatedly stabbed and bludgeoned with an instrument that appeared to be made by a small axe or hatchet, there was evidence that it was most likely that Sherry had been decapitated. Medical examiner Dr. Ronald O'Halloran reported that the severed neck bone and a tiny nick located down towards the bottom of Sherry's skull was indicative of her killer having used a sharp, flat instrument to cut the head from the body, stating, quote, One stroke with a hatchet could produce all of those injuries. They are consistent with a beheading. Though Dr. O'Halloran would later concede that it is impossible to determine exactly when the head was removed from the body or with what instrument was used, and it was possible that her head was removed sometime after her death. But I mean, who's going to come back hours later and cut Sherry's head off? If you ask me, I truly believe that Diana Hahn had enough hate and rage and strength to do exactly just that to Sherry. 
Interestingly enough, we know that when Sherry was kidnapped, Diana had placed her in handcuffs. And from witnesses' statements, she did put her hands behind her back to be cuffed. And incidentally, it's been theorized that Diana used Michael's drug use or his involvement with illegal drugs as a reason for her having been arrested. Like perhaps drugs had turned up inside the home where she ran her daycare, or maybe she was told by one of the children or one of the parents that they had found a stash and reported it to police. Because everyone has said that they don't believe Sherry would have complied the way that she did. Anyway, we know that some portion of the attack on Sherry took place inside the Nissan Altima based on the large amounts of blood that was found in the back seat. Though we can't know exactly what happened, it seems likely that the attack on Sherry began in the back seat while she was still handcuffed. I wondered if maybe Sherry started realizing that something wasn't right and started creating a scene inside the car as Diana was driving along. Maybe Sherry suddenly recognized Diana under all that makeup and the wig and came to realize that she was in a pretty precarious situation. Whether or not Sherry actually recognized Diana under all that makeup and the wig can never be known. But maybe Sherry started screaming for help, forcing Diana to pull over and launch her attack on Sherry to shut her up. As stupid as Diana was, I don't think that she intended to leave any evidence of a violent struggle inside the car. If she could just get Sherry to the remote location in one piece, she could commit this crime outside the car and leave very little in the way of evidence behind. I think it was likely that Diana had no choice but to try and shut Sherry up so she could make it the rest of the way to the remote location that she had chosen. But remember, Diana had scratches on her forehead. So this means at some point, she removed the handcuffs. I don't think she would have taken them off while Sherry was still in the car, but rather once she reached her chosen location and removed Sherry from the vehicle, that's when she took them off. But whatever the case was, by the time the women arrived at the canyon, Sherry was injured and bleeding in the back seat. I think Diana then pulled Sherry from the vehicle, at which point she removed the handcuffs. And I'm thinking it was an effort to not leave any evidence behind that could be traced back to her. But either Sherry was pretending to be more injured than she was, or Diana underestimated Sherry's will to survive. But when those handcuffs were removed, Sherry made one last-ditch effort to save her life. And in doing so, she left her mark on Diana's forehead. Unfortunately, with Sherry as injured as she was, and Diana being in peak physical shape, Sherry was no match. She didn't stand a chance. Diana then continued her attack on her, striking her repeatedly about the face and chest and upper torso. Sherry had a fractured cheekbone, a fractured jaw, stab wounds about the face and neck. I'll talk more about her injuries in a moment. Dr. O'Halloran had arrived at the site where Sherry was found, and he collected and marked the locations of Sherry's bones, which had been strewn about by animal activity across a 10-yard by 10-yard or 9-meter by 9-meter area. 
Once the doctor assembled Sherry's bones, he figured he had about 80% of her body to examine, and it was clear immediately that homicide was her manner of death, and he ruled her cause of death as blunt force injuries. Sherry's skull had multiple fractures. Her neck had been struck by both blunt and sharp objects, and this was consistent with both sides of a hatchet being used against her. Sherry had essentially been killed three times over as she had three different categories of injuries, any of which would have been fatal. So this is overkill. Sherry had been struck in the head with either a very heavy-handed person or a heavy object such as a rock or possibly the blunt side of an axe. And this left three fractures in her left cheekbone. Sherry's jaw had been deeply cut by a sharp object and a small metal fragment of metal from that object used to inflict that cut embedded in Sherry's jawbone. And that piece of metal appeared to be consistent with having come from some sort of serrated knife. Dr. O'Halloran had found Sherry's chin had been cracked clear in two separate pieces. The injury to the chin did not come from a blow from a fist. Her chin was split in half by an axe. He also found evidence that Sherry had been stabbed multiple times with a double-sided knife, perhaps something similar to a dagger, based on the marks left on the bones of her upper torso. And as for the bone at the base of Sherry's skull, which had been severed, Dr. O'Halloran stated that the cut made to that bone was one swift, clean, straight cut, and he believed it was done with the sharp, flat object again consistent with an axe. It was clear that whoever did this to Sherry had a great deal of hatred towards her. The level of violence and the depravity of the way Sherry was killed speaks volumes as to the kind of person Diana Hahn was and what she was capable of. It is truly terrifying. It's been speculated that the act of killing Sherry The whole process was something Diana found enjoyment in carrying out. She would finally be rid of the one thing standing between her and Michael. And she was more than happy to make that happen for herself. Diana was going to face murder charges, but investigators did not believe that she acted alone in this. While Michael Daly himself was at work, He wasn't present when the killing actually took place. Investigators did believe that if not for him, his encouragement, his manipulation of Diana, that she would not have carried this out. They see Michael as having a part in every aspect of the plan to kill Sherry. So they weren't going to be satisfied pinning it all on Diana. They wanted Michael behind bars for his complicity in this. There is no doubt in the minds of investigators that if not for him, Sherry would be alive today. So they were going to keep digging until they came up with enough evidence to charge him as well. And investigators would catch another lucky break. While they struggled to put together a case against Michael for the murder of Sherry, as he consistently denied having anything to do with the planning, anything to do with the murder itself, or having any knowledge of the murder having taken place after the fact, 
which of course nobody is believing, a girlfriend from Michael's past came forward with some pretty damning information. Michael Daly had attempted to solicit the murder of his wife and he wanted her to do it. He regularly talked about his intentions to kill Sherry. He discussed plans and ways of getting away with the murder and he asked her on a number of occasions if she would do it for him. And he laid out what he believed was the perfect plan. Rent a car, get a disguise, pretend to be a police officer, arrest Sherry, take her someplace remote, kill her, toss her down an embankment, or animals will do away with her. And he detailed that plan before that same exact plan was carried out by Diana. This was all his idea. And if Diana could get away with it, then they could go on with their lives as planned. And if she didn't get away with it, then while his hands were clean, Diana would take the fall and he would go on with his life. Either way, Michael Daly didn't care as long as he was not implicated. He may have been in love with Diana Hahn, but just like every other narcissist out there, he was more in love with himself. Diana was disposable, just like all the other women in Michael Daly's life. And I am by no means making Diana Hahn out to be a victim in all of this. There are times that women are manipulated by men to do things that they wouldn't normally do. But Diana, she very much wanted to be a part of this. Michael found exactly what he needed when he found her. One final piece of the puzzle came together when investigators discovered a letter that Sherry had written to Michael just a few days before she died. Sherry had finally given him the ultimatum. And she didn't even ask him to stop seeing Diana. She asked him to check himself into a drug rehabilitation program to deal with his addiction to cocaine. I guess maybe she thought that if she could get him clean, that he might start thinking clearly and be more capable mentally and emotionally to work on their relationship. And in the letter, she said that if he did not begin drug treatment, that she was going to file for divorce that Monday. May 6th, the day she died. Investigators believe that that was the impetus for Diana and Michael to finally put their plan into motion. And it makes me so angry and frustrated that he didn't just let Sherry go and file for the divorce. We know that he hated her. We know he didn't want her around anymore. Why was this whole entire elaborate plan preferable to divorce? Because he's a selfish piece of human garbage that did not want to lose his house or pay child support. He'd already been down that road. He tried living without Sherry and he couldn't swing it. If they divorced, she was going to get half of everything, if not more, including his pension. He'd be paying child support for the next dozen years, and he'd have to support Diana too. That and his sex workers and his cocaine habit, there was no way Michael was going to be able to keep up the life he wanted to live 
So Sherry had to die. And if I had to guess, Diana would become the new Mrs. Dally and someone else would become Michael's new mistress and he would carry on like nothing's changed. Remember, ladies, if he does it with you, he'll do it to you. It took about six more months following Diana's arrest to build up enough evidence against Michael before they were able to finally charge him with murder as well. Diana and Michael would face trial separately. She went first since her case was more solid than Michael's. Prosecutors laid out the entire planning of the whole thing. Three days before Sherry's death, Diana started her shopping spree. She bought that wig. She purchased a fake police badge. She bought the pantsuit. She rented the car on Sunday, the day before the murder. She purchased poster board and used that to manipulate the license plate on the rental car. She bought the axe and the trash bags and the lighter fluid and the matches and the super glue. And then she put the plan into action, which I've already laid out in detail. Though it doesn't seem that Diana used the matches or the lighter fluid, I'm assuming that she was going to try to burn Sherry's body and backed off that plan. And I still don't know what, if anything, she did with that super glue. After Diana killed Sherry, she called up a local dry cleaners. <laughs> I can't with this woman. Asking for advice on how to clean blood out of the back seat of a car. She's a genius, right? Well, her defense, well, she didn't take the stand, but her lawyer said, yes, Diana was involved in this, kind of, but she wasn't the one who killed Sherry. That was it. That was her entire defense. And the jury, well, they sided with the prosecution. After six weeks of testimony, the jury convicted Diana of first-degree murder, at which time a crowd had gathered outside the courtroom and they erupted in cheers at the news of the verdict. And while Diana was facing the possibility of being sentenced to death, the jury had rejected that, and the judge went on to sentence Diana to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Diana said nothing at her sentencing hearing, and she stared at the floor as Sherry's mother delivered an emotionally charged impact statement. Today, Diana Hahn is 58 years old and is housed at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. She will die in prison. As for Michael, his trial began six months after Diana's. He was absolutely certain that he was going to be found not guilty on all charges as he has maintained he had nothing to do with any of this. Confident and cocky as ever and his attorneys would insist that this was all on Diana Hahn. She was the one who planned and carried out Sherry's murder. She did it on her own, by herself. Michael had nothing to do with it. But the prosecutors portrayed Michael as the puppet master. Diana was his puppet, and he pulled the strings. He was the one who compelled Diana into committing this crime. And in order to prove that, as Diana was making her rounds that day that she killed Sherry, she was calling Michael every single step of the way, and phone records confirm that. 
From the time that she was sitting in the Target parking lot, she called him. From the time that she was at the scene where she left Sherry's body, she called him. From the time that she went to a self-serve car wash to try and clean the blood out of the back seat, she called him. From the time that she went to a hardware store to get some cleaning supplies, she called him. Every step she took, she brought Michael Daly along with her. And in laying it all out, it was very clear that they were in this together. Michael's jury also found him guilty of Sherry's murder, and he too was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Today, Michael is 59 years old and is housed at the California State Prison in Lancaster, California, and he too will die there. The only thing Michael Daly would ever admit to was being guilty of falling in love with another woman. As for Michael and Sherry's boys, they were raised by Michael's parents. At the time, both Max and Devin did not believe that their father had anything to do with their mother's death. If that remains true today is unknown. I didn't look too hard for the boys because I really have no reason to. But from a cursory search that I made, it appeared as though they do have an active online presence. Today, Devin would be 32 years old or at least going on 32, and Max would be going on 30. In March of 1998, the boys were awarded a $6.4 million judgment against Diana Hahn for the wrongful death of their mother. For the community of Ventura, California, Michael's conviction, for many, was more rewarding in some ways than Diana's was because there was a very real chance that this man may have gotten away with it. Diana Hahn did her part. She's paying for it. But the plethora of ways Michael Daly betrayed Sherry over and over and over again for years on end. This conviction, this sentence, was a long time coming when it came to obtaining justice for Sherry and seeing Michael Daly get exactly what he deserved. Hopefully, somehow, some way, Sherry Daly knows that she had an army fighting for her and that she is resting easy. And that will bring this 131st episode of California Dreaming to a close. I would encourage you to come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases that we cover, we share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcast that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories, posts about your pets, funny memes, please come over and share. You can also go over to our show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And I would like to wish a happy birthday to Nicole A. and Catherine K. on February 1st, Jen M. and Tabitha S. on February 4th, Leanne H. on the 5th, and Carolyn L. on the 6th, which is today as I'm recording this. Happy birthday, everybody. 
California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an eclectic roster of shows and content, including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So come visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And there you will find links to all of our podcasts, as well as a link to our merchandise store. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. Hey, California Dreaming listeners, my name is Keith Sharon. When I'm not listening to Roseanne Sinclair spin amazing true crime tales, I'm the host of a podcast called Crime Beat, which is produced by the Southern California News Group. We produce a deep-dive narrative podcast about fascinating cases in Southern California. Crime Beat Season 1 was called Stealing Nixon's Millions, and it was about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States. That story was the inspiration for the 2019 movie Finding Steve McQueen with Forrest Whitaker, Travis Fimmel, Rachel Taylor, and William Fickner. Season 2 was called Mom vs. Murderer. It focused on the murder of Kathy Torres, the Cal State Fullerton student who was found stabbed 74 times in the trunk of her own car. Please subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. We're currently working on an incredible case for Season 3, coming soon.